This is Guns and Butter. In 1982, they wrote a defense guidance document, which Reagan signed. Uh, Richard Pearl wrote it. It ordered the Pentagon to deploy Star Wars weapons,、uh, and it assigned them two missions. The first was to destroy opposing satellites and seize military control of space, and the second was to destroy targets on the surface of the Earth without warning. The other thing that was in that defense guidance document was changing our overall military policy from one of war prevention to one of war fighting.、Uh, for years, most of us in the military believed that what we were doing was protecting the American people by preventing World War III. That was all thrown aside, and the document ordered the Pentagon to prepare to fight and win a protracted nuclear war. Now, that's a policy I simply could not support. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Robert Bowman. Today's show: Vietnam, Star Wars, and 9/11. Robert Bowman is a former director of Advanced Space Programs Development for the U.S. Air Force in the Ford and Carter administrations, and a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He holds a Ph.D. in Aeronautics and Nuclear Engineering. From the California Institute of Technology, he emerged as an early critic of the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars, during the Ronald Reagan administration. He has authored two books on the subject of the Strategic Defense Initiative, and is a critic of the National Missile Defense Program of George W. Bush. Robert Bowman founded the Institute for Space and Security Studies and its publication, Space and Security News. Dr. Bowman is on a public speaking tour of the United States, speaking out against wars of aggression in the service of transnational corporations, exposing the official lies about the events of September 11th, and the continuing decimation of the Bill of Rights guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Bob Bowman, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. You are a former director of advanced space programs development for the U.S. Air Force in the Ford and Carter administrations, and a former United States Air Force lieutenant colonel. When did you join the U.S. Air Force? Nin- well, 1956, I went on active duty, but I've been associated with the Air Force ever since 1945, when I joined the Civil Air Patrol as a cadet. So, are you a、uh, a career Air Force person? Yes, I am. I retired in 1978 as a lieutenant colonel. I see. So, how many years were you in the U.S. Air Force? Twenty-two on active duty. Twenty-two on active duty. You flew over 100 missions as a fighter pilot in the Vietnam War. What types of missions were these?、Uh, how effective was the North Vietnamese Air Force? And were the、uh, MiG twenty ones flown by North Vietnam formidable, or did you have a big technical advantage? By the time I got there in nineteen sixty nine and nineteen seventy, the North Vietnamese、uh, were not sending aircraft up against us. We had no opposition in the air, but we had plenty on the ground.、Uh, there were there was a lot of ground fire.、Uh, Particularly along the Mugia Pass,、uh, where、uh, 
we were trying to cut the roads to prevent uh, supplies from being brought from the north to the south. So how long were you serving in Vietnam? Well, I was there in 69 and 70, uh, uh, a little less than a year altogether, and uh, it was sandwiched between two tours in Korea. (laughs) Oh, because I was going to ask you uh, why you, I mean, if you were obviously a career Air Force that you didn't get to Vietnam until 69. That's because you were in Korea? Well, it was mainly because I was doing other things. I was working on a, after being an instructor pilot in the B-25 and the T-33, I uh, got my master's degree and my PhD and then was teaching at uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology. And then... uh, uh, volunteered a couple of times. For a while, they were turning us PhDs down uh, because we were too valuable. They didn't want to lose us in combat. And then uh, the president uh, in 1968 made uh, a decision that every Air Force pilot was going to get a combat tour, including PhDs. That was specifically part of his order. So then uh, they didn't turn me down. Now, who was the president in 1968? Uh, I think that was LBJ. That's right. So yeah. then you weren't a volunteer for uh, combat in Vietnam. You were uh, ordered I was. To... Oh, you were? Yes, I had volunteered. I see. Now, uh, before that, you were in Korea. What were you doing in Korea? Well, I was flying F-4s in Korea as well. As a matter of fact, uh, I wasn't originally scheduled to go to Korea. We were going to go directly to Vietnam after finishing... Uh, Aircraft Commander School down in Homestead, Florida. But uh, the Pueblo incident happened, and our squadron was deployed to Korea to beef up the forces there during that time. And I spent a short time in Korea, then went to Vietnam, did my combat tour, and then was uh, transferred back to Korea. So could you remind us what the Pueblo was? Oh, the Pueblo was an American ship that uh, got taken by the it was taken by the North Koreans. During the Vietnam War? Yes, this was during the Vietnam War. So the North Koreans took a U.S. ship during the Vietnam War. Right. And do we know why? Not exactly. So your missions then in Korea, what were you doing? In Korea, we were mainly training uh, with nuclear weapons uh, for what we would do in the event of a wider war or a reignition of the Korean War, or an attack by the Chinese or the Soviet Union. Oh, I see. So it was more uh, in terms of drills and uh, operations kind of thing. Right. I see. We weren't killing anybody in Korea at that point. I see. What did you feel you had accomplished by the end of the war? Did, Did you become disillusioned about the Vietnam War before it ended? Well, I guess so. I had reservations about war even before I went, but uh, having participated in combat and having seen body bags and uh, kids brought in in stretchers and one thing and another, uh, I, like so many other people who have served in combat, learned that uh, war isn't very nice. And... uh, it's real, and those are real people on the other end. And uh, 
you may note that all our presidents who have served in combat tend to be better presidents than those who have not. Uh, they tend to be uh, less willing to send our sons and daughters off as cannon fodder in their wars. Well, uh, did you have an experience in combat before you were flying these missions in Vietnam, or was that your first experience? That was my first real combat. I see. So with regard to becoming disillusioned about the Vietnam War, you were hesitant before you even served there. Did you remain in the military after the war? Yes, I did. And I must tell you that when I finished uh, 101 combat missions, it was supposed to be 100, but uh, uh, I flew an extra one because the target we went after on the 100th mission couldn't be destroyed because my uh, wingman had uh, problems and couldn't drop his bombs. So I had to come back and get another wingman. We had to go out and do it again to make sure the target was taken care of. Uh, yeah, I I got to tell you that uh, I didn't want to come home uh, after Vietnam. I wanted to stay there. I didn't want to go to Korea. Uh, war is addictive. Uh, it's one of the things I learned about it, and, and it took a while after I came home to uh, uh, for everything to fall into place and for me to face what had happened there and get my mind straight on what I believed about it. But uh, it's, it's a funny thing, uh, and I can understand why troops in combat uh, are reluctant to uh, come back and why so many want to go back again. Uh, there's a lot of camaraderie. And, uh, you know, personal ambition and glory and all those things involved. And uh, it's just uh, very hard. Uh, but uh, in retrospect, of course, I wouldn't do it again because I have learned a great deal in the interim. And I now know that all of the wars that we have fought, uh, certainly since World War II and probably including World War II were based on lies. And as General Smedley Butler said uh, around the, when World War I was brewing, uh, war is a racket. And uh, so knowing what I know now, I wouldn't uh, go over there and drop bombs and possibly kill Vietnamese uh, in uh, a war that had nothing to do with our national security. At that time, uh, the people who ran our government were very afraid of communism and of allowing it to succeed anywhere in the world. It would be a bad example, and our workers would want more. And uh, so that continued for a while after communism sort of wasn't the enemy anymore. We needed a new enemy to uh, keep things going and to provide the military forces to back up the financial interests of multinational corporations and banks around the world. And so they found a new enemy in Saddam Hussein. And then uh, uh, that was the first Gulf War. And then, of course, uh, the people who gave us the uh, 
PNAC document, Rebuilding America's Defenses, Progress for a New American Century, uh, said that we had to permanently occupy Iraq. This was just before George W. Bush became president. We had to occupy Iraq in order to provide a military staging base to control Iran and Syria and Lebanon and Saudi Arabia and the southern Russian republics, all those tens of trillions of dollars worth of oil and gas. And, of course, they also said that uh, the American people would never stand for that unless there was a catalyzing event like a new Pearl Harbor. And, of course, that was supplied by 9-11. Well, I found it very interesting that you say that war is addictive because uh, that's been a little hard for me to understand. But I I do know people personally, a few of these people I know kept uh, uh, re-enlisting and going Mm -hmm. back and... Uh, one person I know uh, had to be actually drug out of there. And I, I guess, well, what is it? Is it once you're in a war that it's too hard to transition back to civilian life? Well, there is that difficulty, certainly. And particularly now with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, because we're making the same mistake there that we made in Vietnam. We're fighting the people who live there. Uh, You know, these people aren't terrorists or insurgents or al-Qaeda. They're residents. That's what they are. And when you're doing that, you wind up uh, probably killing women and children. Uh, For the uh, troops fighting in Iraq, uh, they come back damaged goods because of what they have seen and what they have done. They have severe psychological problems. There's an enormous increase in uh, domestic abuse, in murder, uh, in suicide. And so our troops are being misused because they're being used in a war that has nothing to do with our national security but uh, is uh, for the financial interests of the wealthy few. And because of that, when they realize that and when they realize what they've done over there, uh, many of them just can't adjust, can't go back to normal family life, and can't get the violence out of their system. I'm speaking with former director of Advanced Space Programs Development, Dr. Robert Bowman. Today's show, Vietnam, Star Wars, and 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, may I ask you what type of targets you were uh, instructed to bomb in Vietnam? Well, for the most part, we were involved in cutting roads uh, to prevent uh, the movement of uh, trucks and whatnot down from the north into the south. Uh, in addition, we did a lot of uh, local uh, close support missions where uh, the Marines were on the ground and they'd get themselves surrounded by uh, opposing troops and we'd go in and drop bombs and strafe and rocket and whatnot at uh, the opposing troops to give the Marines a chance to get out, give the Army a chance to get in there with helicopters and extract them if necessary. Uh, There's some very hairy missions in in that way. Uh, 
while I was there at least, uh, we were not bombing cities or anything like that. It was mostly close support of our ground troops and uh, uh, interdiction of uh, roads and and, uh, if there were trucks on the roads, you know, they'd be marked for us with smoke by the forward air controllers. Uh, Whether we ever hit a truck, I don't know, but uh, the idea was to stop them. I see. So then were were the bombing runs over South Vietnam rather than the North? Yes. For the most part, they were over South Vietnam and over the border area, the Mugia Pass across the mountains from the North to the South. For the most part, we operated in the South. You know, I I came of age uh, uh, during the Vietnam War, and I remember as a teenager that I always thought that uh, if I was a guy, my number would have been 168, and I would have been drafted. And I used to think about that a lot. What would I do? Would I go? Would I go to Canada? What would I do? It was a very uh, confusing and upsetting time, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, the first chance I had to go to Washington, D.C. was in 1984. And the only thing that I was determined to see in in Washington, D.C. was the Vietnam War Memorial. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't really know where it was. I, I was just sort of wandering around. And I, I remember being in a sort of a field or in a grassy area. And I stumbled upon it sort of coming sideways. I, I, I saw this wall starting to rise out of the earth. And as soon as I saw it, I, I burst into tears, and it was only then um, that I realized how much pain that I was carrying from that war, and and I wasn't even there. Yeah, there's a lot of pain associated with it, particularly for us that go up there and touch the names of our close friends who didn't come back. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that was a, quite a chapter in American and Vietnamese history, and mm-hmm. It's probably going to take a long time for... What people have to understand is that we eventually uh, decided to declare victory and leave. And, of course, we lost the war. But the Vietnamese people have turned out to be our friends and trading partners. And, you know, the world didn't end because we lost the war. And... The truth of the matter is that uh, as early as 1965, uh, Lyndon Johnson and uh, Bob McNamara knew that the war couldn't be won. And yet they continued for another decade pouring troops in there and uh, killing another uh, million Vietnamese and losing another – 50 to 55,000 of our troops. When I was fighting there, they had known for years that the war wouldn't be won. And yet they let us go over there and, and get shot at. And uh, I nearly nearly didn't come back to my wife and seven children. And, you know, how can, how can they live with themselves? I know I talked to Bob McNamara after he'd written his book in which he revealed all this. And he did seem to be sort of a tortured man because he knew it was wrong to leave us there and continue that war. So how did your uh, analysis and feelings about the Vietnam War evolve or change? I mean, 
Um, obviously, you must uh, see it differently now or subsequently after your service there. Yeah, of course. The uh, the more I learned, uh, the more I was against what we had done over there. And uh, the more I was determined that... Uh, we should prevent such unnecessary wars in the future. In uh, the early 80s, I, uh, after I retired, I spent uh, a number of years uh, preventing Ronald Reagan from allowing the lunatic fringe who pulled his strings, uh, getting us into a war of aggression against the Soviet Union. And... Uh, we finally succeeded in that, but then when George W. Bush came in, the same crazies came in with him, uh, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, Richard Pearl, Paul Wolfowitz, and they were still looking for wars of aggression, uh, this time, of course, against Iraq primarily, and uh, also against Afghanistan when they turned down the Unical pipeline, and... Uh, because of 9-11, we weren't able to succeed in preventing them from fighting those wars of aggression and unnecessarily losing more thousands of American troops. What was your rank when you retired from the U.S. military? Lieutenant Colonel. By the way, if, if folks say, well, you know, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, they're not very important. They don't have charge for very much. You know, I, I sometimes... When people hear that I directed all the Star Wars programs under Presidents Ford and Carter, uh, they say, oh, a lieutenant colonel would never get that kind of responsibility. And, and uh, you know, what I say is, is, you know, tell that to people like Ollie North, who had a heck of a lot more responsibility as a lieutenant colonel than I ever did. Uh, there have been several in the, the White House that have had enormous responsibility and enormous impact, not always for good. <laughs> How did you become the director of the Star Wars program under President Ford? Well, what happened there was that uh, I was uh, at the right base where uh, that position was, and uh, the colonel who had charge of that then got promoted to a, a higher position at uh, the Air Force Station, and... Uh, he looked around for someone to take that over, and because of my technical background, uh, he interviewed me and picked me, and uh, I was reassigned into that position. Uh, the Star Wars program was actually only one of four divisions that I commanded in that job, and uh, when I retired, they split my command up uh, between uh, a colonel and three generals. <laughs> Did you view Star Wars as a defensive program when you started as director? When I took over the Star Wars program, we were looking at its capabilities primarily in terms of the possibility of intercepting ballistic missiles. But we did system studies to see what was possible and what wasn't possible and what countermeasures were available in case the Soviets deployed such a system. And in an article, a secret document that uh, I wrote in 1977, I said that these new technologies right out of Star Wars, and I used that term six years before Reagan's Star Wars speech, 
I said these new technologies right out of Star Wars probably never have any defensive value because of their enormous vulnerability, but they have obvious awesome offensive capabilities, uh, which are obvious to both sides. And I proposed, uh, because attempting to deploy such systems uh, was likely to trigger a nuclear war, I proposed a freeze on these Star Wars technologies along with a freeze on offensive ballistic missiles, such things as improved accuracy and multiple warheads. Was this when you were director? Yes. I see. Um, what led to your decision to resign from the position as director of Star Wars and begin to campaign across the country to stop the program? Well, actually, I never resigned from it. I retired from the Air Force in 1978 to go into industry and uh, you know, make some money for a change, start my new career. And uh, that was while Jimmy Carter was still president. And at that point, I was happy with what we had done. It was a secret program uh, in accordance with the ABM Treaty, you know, quietly doing the necessary research so that we couldn't be taken by surprise. But uh, then Ronald Reagan was elected, and in with him came this lunatic French. Uh, Cheney and Rumsfeld and Richard Pearl and Paul Wolfowitz and Colin Gray and, and a bunch of folks, including a couple who have passed away uh, now, like Edward Teller and, and Danny Graham. And these folks sold Reagan on Star Wars. And they sold it to him and the American people as a defensive shield, even though uh, we knew that uh, it probably would never have any use as a defensive shield. And uh, in 1982, they wrote a defense guidance document, which Reagan signed. Uh, R Richard Pearl wrote it. And it ordered the Pentagon to deploy Star Wars weapons, uh, and it assigned them two missions the first was to destroy opposing satellites and seize military control of space. And the second was to destroy targets on the surface of the Earth without warning. There was no, no mention in there of uh, shooting down ballistic missiles uh, because that is a task that at the time appeared to be impossible. Uh, the other thing that was in that defense guidance document was changing our overall military policy from one of war prevention to one of war fighting. Uh, for years, uh, most of us in the military believed that what we were doing was protecting the American people by preventing World War III. And that was all thrown aside uh, in 1982. And the document ordered the Pentagon to prepare to fight and win a protracted nuclear war. Now, that's a policy I simply could not support. Fortunately, I had retired in time. I started speaking out against Reagan's Star Wars scheme and the whole business of the winnable nuclear war. And uh, Reagan's own Joint Chiefs of Staff called me into the Pentagon and said, 
Bob, you've got to help us out. There's a gag order. We can't say anything. We can't write anything without it being censored by the White House. Even if we retire, the gag order stays with us. But you retired in time before Reagan took office. They have no legal hold on you. Uh, You've got to warn the Congress and the American people about this military lunacy. And in particular, they wanted me to uh, warn about the dangers of Star Wars weapons. And I did. So I gave over 5,000 speeches against Star Wars. Uh, I had already begun to do so, but uh, I kept it up and uh, uh, personally briefed many members of Congress and the Senate. And we did succeed in keeping weapons out of space and preventing nuclear war with the Soviet Union. I'm speaking with former director of Advanced Space Programs Development, Dr. Robert Bowman. Today's show, Vietnam, Star Wars, and 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, what what year did you start giving these uh, public presentations uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, raise public awareness about what was really going on with Star Wars? A little bit in 1981, but mostly starting in 1982. I see. Now, this document that you refer to or this strategy with these two objectives, which mm-hmm. were offensive for putting uh, weapons in space. Right. Who, who authored this document? And this was a secret document, wasn't it? It was a secret document written by Richard Pearl and signed by Ronald Reagan and leaked to the press – by Bob Shear of the Los Angeles Times. And it was published in Europe in the uh, American language newspaper over there. Uh, we happened to be there at the time in October 1982 for Unispace 82, the second United Nations Conference on Space. So you found out about it by, well, obviously people in the government were talking to you, but you're saying that this was made public in the European press. Yes, it was uh, the American press here in the United States, by and large, uh, ignored it. But uh, it was published first in the Los Angeles Times by Bob Shear. Well, see, this is very important, and this is what we're dealing with uh, today: is the uh, consolidation of media and the control, particularly here in the United States. Of course, and it's much, much worse today uh, when you have major events go on. And the government concocts a lie. It's a lot easier to sell that lie today than it used to be. Uh, Think back to 1963 and the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, Yeah, the Warren Commission was much like the uh, 9-11 Commission in concocting a cock and bull story uh, to cover up the truth. But in 1963, there were still independent newspapers and independent media. And so almost all Americans heard about the grassy knoll. But fast forward to today and when 9-11 happened, uh, almost all the major media were absolutely dominated by a handful of multinational corporations owned lock, stock, and barrel by these corporations who profited greatly uh, from the wars. 
and had interlocking board of directors with weapons manufacturers and oil companies and all the rest. So the result of that was that almost nobody except for a handful of us in the 9-11 truth movement has ever heard of Building 7. And Building 7 is the smoking gun. It's the grassy knoll of 9-11, if you will. And yet so many people haven't heard of it. Uh, when Barack Obama was still in the Senate, uh, I went to see him. I only saw him very briefly, said a, a few you know, words, niceties, and, and he had to leave. But I briefed his chief of staff in the Senate for over an hour, and I showed him my three-minute smoking gun video of Building 7, showing the BBC announcing the collapse of Building 7 10 to 20 minutes before it happened. And uh, the BBC announcer talking about why Building 7 had come down, and you can still see it standing over her left shoulder. Uh, and it shows a clip of Larry Silverstein talking about his decision to pull it and talking about uh, his uh, insurance policy, which he took out only weeks before 9-11, uh, specifically uh, covering acts of terrorism. And it also shows about a dozen views of Building 7 coming down from different angles, uh, each one looking for all the world like a perfect controlled demolition of an intact building with no visible fires, a building that had not been struck by an aircraft. And if someone sees this video and understands that that building came down at freefall speed at 5.20 in the afternoon, hours after the two tallest towers had come down, this 47-story steel-reinforced building, uh, it's very hard for them to deny that the official Bush conspiracy theory about 9-11 is impossible. And yet, what happened when I showed this to Obama's chief of staff? He said, I'd never heard of Building 7. And he's chief of staff for a leading United States senator and candidate for the presidency. So that's what the media has done. Uh, they have kept the American people in the dark about so much, the American people, rather than being informed, are brainwashed. So we have a hard job, and, and that's why you know, stations like KPFA are so important. Well, even though Senator Obama's chief of staff said he'd never heard of Building 7 before, after he found out about it from you, mm -hmm. he still didn't do anything, did he? No. Uh, well, I don't know whether he ever told Barack Obama about this. And so I can't say for sure if President Obama understands about Building 7 and knows that the official 9-11 story is a lie. I just don't know. But he ought to know. Is Star Wars dead or does it live on under another name? Well, it does live on. Uh, now, I differentiate between ground-based ballistic missile defense 
and, and sea-based ballistic missile defense and the space-based weapons, which I call Star Wars, uh, because whereas the ground-based ballistic missile defense is largely a waste of money and an attempt to deny smaller nations uh, a deterrent capability. It does not have the pure offensive capabilities that the space-based weapons do. And so while I oppose the ground-based ballistic missile defense as largely a waste of money and a subsidy for the weapons manufacturers and all the rest of it, it's not a sufficient danger that I would have spent my last 28 years talking about it instead of getting a paycheck. (laughs) Uh, So I do differentiate between those. Uh, But the Star Wars, the space-based weaponry has gone deep black. Uh, The funding uh, is hidden. Congress doesn't know what they're funding, just like in my day. Uh, The uh, various programs within uh, what I called Star Wars uh, didn't have a name. They had numbers. Uh, Laser battle stations, we were designing laser battle stations. We were developing the the laser itself with TRW and uh, the pointing and tracking system uh, with Raytheon and the mirrors with Kodak and Perkinelmer, 50-foot diameter, actively cooled mirrors. Uh, Lockheed was doing system studies. But it didn't have a name. It had a project number and, and under DARPA. And uh, so Congress didn't know what they were funding. And you're saying that that's still the situation? Well, it changed, of course, under Reagan because in order to get it the kind of funding that was necessary and to uh, get the support of the American people, they had to declassify a lot of stuff. And uh, so SDI came into being, which incorporated all the old Star Wars programs. But now, ballistic missile defense has returned to more of the ground-based, sea-based stuff. And anything which is space-based has gone back into the black where uh, it is hidden. I see. And SDI stands for Strategic Defense Initiative. Yes, which is uh, an oxymoron just uh, like uh, uh, the MX was the peacekeeper. (laughs) And so you're saying that the Strategic Defense Initiative now, as in the past, particularly and, and most specifically starting under Reagan, was offensive, not defensive. Absolutely. Of course, SDI as such doesn't exist anymore. It has morphed into a ballistic missile defense office and so forth. The name has changed several times. But uh, it was never defensive in nature, particularly under Reagan. So now are you saying that what is now called a ballistic missile defense incorporates uh, Star Wars? Not openly, but yes, I believe it does, and I believe they're still working on uh, perfecting uh, space-based weaponry that can be used offensively to give us the kind of absolute military superiority that we had when we had a, a monopoly on nuclear weapons. 
You found the official explanation of the failure of the air defense system on September 11th, 2001, to be incredible. Did you reject the official account from the start, or come to this view over time? Well, my wife can tell you that as we sat there and watched what was happening on the morning of September 11th, 2001, what I kept saying over and over was, "Where are the interceptors?" And I mean, that just doesn't happen. Hijacked airliners do not fly around for an hour and forty minutes without being intercepted, unless our air defense system was deliberately sabotaged. And nineteen Arabs with box cutters can't do that. And something was fishy.、Uh, I also, when I saw the first tower come down, I said, "That can't happen." There's no way that an aircraft impact and the paltry fires caused by that could cause that structure to come down with all its thousands of tons of steel and concrete. And then the other one fell too. And I mean, I knew the whole thing was just fishy. And, and then in the newspaper, while Condoleezza Rice is going around saying, "Oh my goodness, we never thought such a thing could happen.、Uh, who could envision this kind of thing?"、And、we find out that exercises were going on that very morning, simulating hijacked aircraft being flown into high-value targets like buildings.、Uh, and it was reported to the FBI that、uh, Musawi was probably working on a project to fly a hijacked airliner into the World Trade Center. But we go from being absolutely clueless to, within hours, the front page of the newspapers having all the names and pictures of the supposed hijackers, while an indestructible black box from the airliner supposedly evaporated in this fire. An unharmed passport of one of the hijackers floats to the street below. The whole thing was just fishy from the beginning. I'm speaking with former director of advanced space programs development, Dr. Robert Bowman. Today's show: Vietnam, Star Wars, and 9/11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How important has your understanding of 9/11 been to the development of your current campaign to warn the country about the trend toward fascism? Well, I think 9/11 has a pivotal role to play because it is the primary tool that the corporations who are imposing fascist policies on our government has used to bring about the results that they wanted: the occupation of Iraq, the war against Afghanistan、uh, to secure the、uh, gas pipeline for Unical. Uh, the taking away of our、uh, constitutional rights,、uh, one by one, we're, we're losing freedom of speech and、uh, freedom of assembly and freedom from、uh, arrest and conviction without charge and, and you name it, torture even.、Uh, we're losing our constitutional rights with the、uh, misnamed Patriot Act. The Military Commissions Act. All these acts are unconstitutional because they take away rights that are guaranteed in the Constitution. And 
Congress doesn't have the power to do that. They can't just pass a law and get some puppet president to sign it and take away our constitutional rights. They would have to amend the Constitution and get the amendment ratified by the states. And that hasn't happened and it won't happen and they know that. Uh, so the Patriot Act is unconstitutional on its face and it has no effect legally. But in practical terms, of course, they enforce it with the governmental power. We the people must resist because the rights that were granted in the Constitution are still ours because they cannot take them away the way they have attempted to do so. Now, all of these evils and, and more are a result of 9-11. They've gotten away with it because of 9-11. And we have seen now with President Obama going for a couple of years and not allowing any discussion of 9-11 truth, not supporting a new investigation. Uh, we have seen that uh, he has expanded the war in Afghanistan, extended it into Pakistan, uh, extended the Patriot Act, even expanded portions of it. Uh, he has not taken away presidential directives 20 and 51, which give him dictatorial powers. He's not done away with the threat of martial law. He has not closed the uh, Halliburton concentration camps. So all the evils brought about by 9-11 are continuing under a different party, a different president, a different regime. And it has become clear that until we destroy the government myth about 9-11 and get some real truth told through a new and truly independent investigation, uh, all these evils are going to continue. And that's why 9-11 is critical. Uh, many people say, oh, well, yeah, I, I know that the story they told us was not exactly right. Uh, yeah, we've been lied to. We're, we've been lied to all the time. What difference does it make? It's ancient history and, and live with it. You know? And I say, no, we can't live with it because uh, millions of Iraqis and Afghans have been killed. Uh, 5,000 going on 6,000 of our troops have died in, in these phony wars, part of the war on terror. Uh, some 40,000 of our injured soldiers will never be the same. Tens of thousands uh, of our young men and women uh, have severe psychological problems because of what they have seen and what they have done. Hundreds of thousands are poisoned by depleted uranium, will suffer lives of pain and disability, and will father thousands of children with severe birth defects. The whole Military services are depleted and demoralized. The VA system is underfunded and overwhelmed. The National Guard and reserves have been subjected to tour after tour, disrupting lives for even the lucky ones that return unscathed. Jobs have been lost. Homes have been foreclosed. Marriages have been destroyed. Children have been estranged. And for what? We have alienated our friends around the world, made new enemies, created thousands of new recruits for Osama bin Laden, whether he's dead or alive, and further endangered the American people. And why? 9-11? That's the excuse. The real reason, of course, is to protect the financial interests of multinational corporations who have no loyalty to the United States and, for the most part, pay no taxes to the United States. That's the nature of fascism. 
corporate control of government, and the worst aspect of it is using our sons and daughters as cannon fodder in their wars of aggression. We have to stop it. And if it takes getting to the truth of 9-11, we will do that and stop it. Could you uh, give a brief explanation of those two presidential directives that you mentioned? Those directives, for the most part, give the president, and of course they were became law under George W. Bush, they give the president the ability basically to uh, suspend the Constitution, become a dictator, uh, order martial law, and round up dissidents like me and put us in concentration camps. The 9-11 events have been used as the main pretext to launch wars abroad in resource-rich and geostrategically important places, uh, which you've just pointed out. What is the level of awareness in the U.S. military of the lies about terrorist attacks by Muslims? I think that by and large the folks in the military are about like the folks in the population at large. Uh, A significant percentage knows about uh, the phoniness of 9-11 and uh, there's another large percentage that are just clueless like in the general public. Uh, People in the military tend not to be very different, except in the officer corps where they're more highly educated and probably a little more aware than the public in general. By the way, I think that the military are our best defense against martial law because if a president declares martial law, who's going to round us up and put us in those concentration camps. I don't think the military is going to do it. I think our military will surround us and point their guns outward to protect us from Blackwater. You do think this? I do. How do and how should the officers and troops who are aware of the real nature of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq deal with this reality? The oath of office that we take in the military is to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That includes a renegade president and vice president. The uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, to which all of us in the military uh, are subject, includes the Nuremberg Principles, which this country established at the end of World War II, and on the basis of which we executed Nazis who protested that they were just following orders. The Nuremberg Principles, which we are all sworn to follow, state in part that we in the military have not only the right but the duty to refuse an illegal order. So anyone in the military who is aware that a war is illegal unconstitutional, which means it hasn't been declared by Congress, for example, unjust, they have the duty to refuse to participate in that war. They may wind up going to the brig, serving time, but uh, when all is said and done, that is the right thing to do, and eventually they will be exonerated. 
when the truth comes out. There has been, then and now, uh, a battle going on in the Pentagon for the heart and soul of this country. There are generals and admirals who, uh, people who follow in the footsteps of crazy George Keegan and uh, Kurt LeMay during Kennedy's time. You may remember General Kurt LeMay. Uh, And there are others like uh, Admiral William Fallon, who famously said, not on my watch about an attack on Iran. He at that time was General Petraeus's boss and uh, was very important in stopping it. Uh, They've tried to purge those kinds of people out of the Pentagon, but they haven't succeeded. There's a battle within the Pentagon and within the CIA uh, over where this country is going. And I certainly hope that the cooler heads prevail uh, because a war on Iran would be absolutely disastrous. And you do feel that if martial law uh, were declared that our U.S. military would not enforce it. And what makes you think this? I believe that the U.S. military will protect the American citizens rather than uh, round them up and corral them into concentration camps uh, for two reasons. Uh, One, uh, there have been polls of enlisted personnel saying, are there any circumstances in which you would point your gun at an American citizen if ordered to do so? And about 70% said no. Uh, In addition, we have a very well-educated officer corps who are aware of their oath of office and of the Nuremberg principles. And finally, there is a growing organization called Oath Keepers, which uh, reminds both military personnel and uh, law enforcement officers of their oath of office and the fact that that oath of office means that they must not follow orders to uh, disarm, arrest, or incarcerate American citizens exercising their constitutional right of dissent. I am attempting to get the Oath Keepers organization to add another uh, to the list of 10 orders they will not follow, and that is that they will not follow orders to participate in a war of aggression. Dr. Robert Bowman, thank you very much. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Robert Bowman. Today's show has been Vietnam, Star Wars, and 9-11. Robert Bowman is a former director of Advanced Space Programs Development for the U.S. Air Force in the Ford and Carter administrations. He is a retired Air Force lieutenant colonel. He holds a Ph.D. in aeronautics and nuclear engineering from the California Institute of Technology. He emerged as an early critic of the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars, during the Ronald Reagan administration. Robert Bowman founded the Institute for Space and Security Studies and its publication Space and Security News. Dr. Bowman is on a public speaking tour of the United States, speaking out against wars of aggression in the service of transnational corporations, exposing the official lies about the events of September 11th, and the continuing decimation of the Bill of Rights 
guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution. Visit his website at www.thepatriots.us. That's T-H-E-P-A-T-R-I-O-T-S dot U-S. Today's show was produced by Todd Fletcher and Susan Peabody. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaromako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we're living in, G. And a new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 